You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. I'm your host, Melissa Zalouf, and this is the third episode in our series for indie developers called What I Wish I Knew When. Joining me on today's podcast is Simon Davis, who's originally from the UK, but currently located in Singapore. Simon is the CEO and co-founder of Mighty Bear Games, the venture-backed developer behind the hit game Butter Royale. And we're going to be talking about what he wishes he knew earlier on in his career when evaluating ideas for new games and how to identify potential hits. Simon, thanks very much for being on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, to, to start with, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your journey in the gaming industry and how you ended up starting Mighty Bear. Sure, yeah. So like most people in the games industry, I kind of landed in it by accident. Um, so I was actually originally a music graduate and I was yeah. a working musician down in Brighton. So I was teaching guitar, I was playing in bands, doing kind of just trying to make a living from playing my guitar. And like most musicians, uh, I was pretty broke a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm lucky enough that I grew up in a bilingual family. And one summer, I got a summer job doing localization. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I actually applied for localization, I ended up doing QA. And so I started actually in the industry at the very bottom about, I want to say, close to 17 years ago. And you know, mm-hmm. from that, that QA went into uh, design and production, uh, product management, um, being a senior product lead, moving from console to free-to-play. I was there during that transition in around the late 2000s, early 2010s, and then eventually kind of, you know, moving into mobile and, and today kind of founding Mighty Bear. But, you know, that journey's taken me through everything from outsourcing, which is where I started, to publisher side, developer side, uh, and then working at big, big companies like uh, Ubisoft and Bigpoint and doing, you know, um, external projects for some of the, the biggest companies in the industry. So it's been a very interesting journey. Mm-hmm. What was the second language? <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, I should have mentioned. Yeah, my mother uh, is actually Spanish. So we spoke Spanish at mm. home. Handy. Yeah. Um, very cool. And and how, let's talk a little bit about Butter Royale. How did you come up with the concept um, and the mechanics there? Were you sort of looking to make a Battle Royale style game or uh, did it sort of happen serendipitously? No, I mean, it wasn't something we explicitly set out to do. So as a studio, we have a whole focus on what we call accessible multiplayer. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's our thing. Like we we tackle multiplayer games and my kind of genres and ideas that may have been established elsewhere, but haven't really reached like a mainstream audience. And that's something we think is really interesting. So Mario Kart is a classic example of this this kind of thinking where you take a you know, racing games, which are traditionally not that accessible and you create an experience which is very deep, but like anyone can pick up. So within the team, we encourage people to come up with ideas for concepts all the time and put them forward and evaluate them. There was one concept in the team which we didn't run with, which was called Calamari Royale. Uh, <laughs> and it was very hardcore. Uh, and that's the reason we didn't do it, basically. But th- at that point, it kind of, you know, the the germ of the idea came in as some kind of Royale idea with food. Um, and then basically Apple approached us um, you know, to ask if we had any ideas for for titles for Apple Arcade. And we went back to our idea bank because we had a very kind of short time frame to make the the game in. I mean, the game was made in six months. Uh, And we were looking at Calamari Royale. And then I was like, well, actually, what if we did? But like the game started actually with a pun. And then we fleshed out the concept and it was evaluated against, 
seven or eight other concepts. And we realized actually it was one that we could execute within the timeframe, which was obviously like essential uh, in the decision-making process, but also was really fun and actually hit a lot of the other marks that we had as a studio. So the initial concept was a bit more wacky than what we have now, but it was, I'd say 99% there or 95% there. Nice. Um, so that's a nice segue to talking about our, our main focus, um, which is how we want to pick your brain, essentially, and your experience um, on how to come up with new game ideas that succeed uh, and evaluating, being able to tell, right, which ones are, are going to be the next big hit and which ones um, aren't. So to start, uh, let's begin with, with the fundamental question. Uh, how do you come up with game ideas? Um, how do you sort of <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I have lots of sub-questions here, but I'm going to yeah. leave this high level and open for now. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question, right? It's like, how do you how do you write a song or write a story? I think the easiest right. way, and it sounds so trite, right, is to just start and encourage mm-hmm. a team to start getting into the habit of writing down their ideas and and kind of put like showing them what good looks like in terms of like a high level game pitch. So we have a format we use for that. Just as like three bullet points, maybe a mock-up screenshot, and then like a tagline and a name and try and sell the idea. And if you can convey the idea within that format, then you already kind of have the germ of something. But I think really developing that muscle and that that practice, because a lot of people just go off and build the first thing they think of or something mm-hmm. they think is like really cool and they don't consider other options. And so we encourage the team to do that a lot, actually. Um and I think that's that's a big part of, of of how we approach the problem. But the other thing is just having a clear framework. So again, like we mentioned accessible multiplayer earlier, like the team has the app framework that we've evolved over time. It has changed, but they know what the criteria are and what we value and what we don't value. And that already kind of steers things kind of in the right direction as well. It does mean that yeah. some ideas will never get brought to us that could maybe be, you know, really good, but I'm okay with that because there are, I would rather that given that we're so small that we focus on kind of specific areas of specialism and, and become experts at those rather than trying to, I don't know, like a hundred hour narrative RPG okay. type game, which makes no sense for us. Uh huh. Um, and when it comes to, um, I mean, you've talked about being uh, about specificity, but um, out, let's say you're sort of an average, not an average, you're a game developer, you're not in, you know, currently working for Mighty Bear. Um should you look to really innovate and reinvent the wheel or is it safer to put a spin on a tried and tested concept that's already succeeding in the market um, or, or is there a case for both? I'd actually say there's a case for both. So, you know, some companies are design-led. I think Apple is a you know fantastic example of that, right? They don't really, you look at other companies that do a lot of A-B testing, a lot of focus group type test that's not how you build like really innovative products like the first iphone for example right and it's the same with game studios some game studios have that that capability and that kind of approach and they have the right uh, personnel for that and it totally makes sense and other people are much stronger on the data side right and very good at iterating and kind of finding something that really works so i mean there is definitely like a big risk in doing something completely different so especially if you're doing your own publishing right from a marketing and UA perspective, there's going to be a lot of unknowns there if you do something that's completely new. And presumably there'll be a lack of expertise from within the team, both from a product and publishing perspective. But, and then like, you know, if I was playing devil's advocate, I'd say if you look at probably the two most successful uh, games on desktop today, which are both what, League of Legends and Fortnite, they're essentially iterative, right? Fortnite mm. builds on the other Royale games that came before it and League of Legends, obviously, 
uh, follows on from what Dota did as well. So um, I think, you know, historically the games have been the biggest, biggest hits have been improvements on existing formulas. But, you know, if you can land on a on a winning formula off the, from the off, then you have this amazing blue ocean open to, to just yourself. It's a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about understanding um, and identifying market opportunities? Do you guys use... Um uh, like and and market analysis services um, like Appani, for example. And if so, um, what are you looking at? Uh, what are the because there's a lot on that platform. <laughs> so which yeah. uh, which metrics would you be looking at? I mean, we do use services like that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give anyone free advertising and say which one we use. <laughs> um, <laughs> but from the off, like I'm not sure this is like the right approach to start with. So I think it's healthy to have a strong thesis as a studio so you really sit down you think about what it is that your studio is good at doing uh taking into mind the team you have their strengths their interests and where it aligns so for example our first game actually was a uh, we did actually the approach that you just described now so we looked at the market and we say hey uh MMOs have this amazing long-term retention with the players who stay beyond like the first couple of weeks. Uh, they monetize very well. There's this huge opportunity for like a casual MMO. And there's a number of reasons that game didn't really work out for us. But one of the ones, if I'm totally honest, is because the team just didn't have the the level of enthusiasm for the genre and the and the content we were building that they did for other genres. I think you have mm. to be really honest about what you can do as a studio and where people's interests lie because someone that really loves a concept like we have with Battle Royale now, uh, the quality of the work is just is very different. Even if people do their best, like you can really feel the love when you pick up a game and then you can see the team is really passionate about it. Um, but so only at the point where we have a thesis, do we start looking at like games and genres on these service to identify kind of spaces where we think there might be an opportunity to do our own thing. So with accessible multiplayer, for example, like there's a couple of concepts we have within the studio, which are not, not shooters, but they do fit the team's interests. And we have gone in there and we've looked at, you know, things like retention, uh, CPI, RPI. So that's, sorry, I shouldn't use acronyms, uh, cost per install and revenue per install for these, <laughs> you never know, right? Uh, for, for these yeah. different games and try and identify where we think like there's an underserved market or, or an opportunity that, Maybe, you know, for the bigger companies, you know, the Zingers and the Supercells and whatever this world is not really worth their time. But for someone like us, like, you know, a game that makes, I don't know, 10 to 50 to $100 million a year is still a very good business. Mm-hmm, for sure. And what are the kinds of activities you talked about um, setting a framework, but what are some of the activities you do at Mighty Bear to come up with ideas? Yeah, so I know a lot of people do things like hackathons and like workshops mm-hmm. and stuff. I'm generally not a fan of them. Um, I feel they're a bit like forced fun. Uh, so it's like you're telling people to be, be creative for a day and then like go back to their desk. Uh, so one of the things we try and encourage is to have that kind of mindset all the time. So, you know, I worked for large companies for years and I'm sure there are exceptions, but I've been to many hackathons and I'm yet to see one of them that actually delivered a game that launched. Um, we do occasionally, like, for example, we had... Uh, without being too specific, we had basically the owner of a very large franchise come to us and say, hey, like, would you like to make a game based on this? And then we went away and we were like, okay, and we dissected it as a as like a group of people and then within our Mighty Bear framework, what works, what doesn't work. And then we sent people away to come up with some ideas over the course of like a week. But we let people go and do that in their own time and give them the 
the framework, but then they have the time and the kind of space to allow those ideas to gestate and then they put them within the kind of template. So everyone is delivering stuff that looks roughly comparable so that you can actually compare mm-hmm. different ideas as well. But I think for us, it's the challenge is to get people doing this like in a constant state and constantly delivering new ideas and, and improvements to our games rather than trying to mandate when people get to be creative. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Contrary to, to popular wisdom, uh, and and once you have that um, set of, of comparable uh, game concepts, and it's time to evaluate uh, which has the most potential. Um, how do you? What's the criteria that you're looking at that helps you identify what makes uh, a winning game or a winning concept? Let's say, um, what are those considerations? Um, and and does that differ right from from studio to studio? Yeah, I think it does differ from studio to studio for sure. So like the framework that we've come up with, like that spreadsheet was an example of it. Uh, and I didn't share everything that we use because it's just very specific to us. Uh, but a lot of it's based on postmortems from other games where we analyze what didn't work, but also what did work and what really resonates. So one of like, one of the criteria we have now is like, like when we describe Battle Royale, we'd say how like basically... Um, a Royale game with food where you shoot people with food until they pass out. And people always like smile or laugh at that. So uh-huh. one of the criteria yeah. is like, if we describe the game, can we make people laugh? And like humor is like one of the most important things now that determines whether we do a game because it's actually helped the game a lot. Uh, just with reach and with uh, the level of engagement from some of the members of the community and and marketing, like Apple have done this amazing push behind the game. And I think that all played a huge part of it. Um, and then other things we look at which I think are kind of more relevant to everyone are things like the team strengths, which I was talking about, and skills. So if you have guys on your team who don't have any back-end experience, then maybe building an, an MMO is not such a great idea. And like people being very honest and uh, also looking at the kind of technical solutions that they could use to fill those gaps. Uh, I mentioned it before, but really never underestimate the importance of enthusiasm on your team as well. And like what genres people love. Obviously, the job is not to make games for yourself, right? It's to make games for your audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that you should at least keep in mind like the kind of games that could get people on the team excited or are happy to work on. Relevant titles shipped. So if someone has shipped shooters or racing games before, then sorry, the likelihood is that they're going to be you know, very good at, at kind of those games. They're going to have the right kind of background. Uh, also, like what kind of UA pipeline do you have in your studio? Like, are you, Is your is your community really set up for example can you cross promote from one community mm. to to the game that you're working on like there's a lot of different stuff uh the, i think the most important one though which is undervalued a lot when people think of the next cool creative idea they want to make is time to market mm. versus resources so mm. we have a hard rule like we don't develop any games that we self-fund uh, which can't go to beta within six months and people say that sounds very aggressive but it's a great way of being really focused and making sure that you have like a very strong MVP without any kind of superfluous features when you start collating data. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that sounds very wise. Um, what uh, this is actually, I think, a, a really interesting question. What are the dangers of bias? Uh, which is like the, the toughest thing to tackle yeah. because a lot of the time you're unaware. Um, but when you're tackling the process of green lighting a game. Um, 
is is it is bias an issue first of all because you know what it, it exists but maybe it's not uh it's not necessarily a bad thing um and have there been times in your experience where you've had to sort of catch yourself from getting carried away and by an idea that you really want to succeed but wasn't sort of hitting some of the criteria you've described which is obviously complicated by the fact that you've said you know from your perspective team enthusiasm right and and love for the concept is a big part of what what um drives success yeah, um, that is true. But I would say that different people on the team are uh, enthusiastic about different things. So generally, that's less of an issue. Now, having said that, bias is is real. Uh, one of the challenges we've had as a company is that um, not everyone is great at being objective about their own ideas, right? Uh, and it's something <laughs> yeah. that everyone has to work on, some more than others. And there are certain people who we've had to really invest a lot of time on on that. And I think that when you have a live game and Maybe the numbers are not conclusive one way or another. Uh, that's a very dangerous trap. You know, it's, uh, I have a very good investor friend. Uh, I'll name drop him. Uh, Henrik from Play Ventures is always talking about how yeah. every every game studio he talks about is uh, always says, oh, it'll be the next update, the next update uh, that fixes things. And it never is. Like That's a big trap. And basically, you know, studios can die because they spend, you know, a year or two or three years even trying to turn around a game which has like, below average metrics and it's not really kind of savable so one of the things we realized from our first game actually was to really work around this we released an mmo um and we spent 18 months on it with eight guys uh which was not an experience i'd, I'd like to repeat building an mmo with eight people but um <laughs> but really like if i'm brutally honest like we probably could have killed it slightly earlier i would say it was a good learning experience for the studio but mm-hmm. uh, I think once you've greenlit a game and the game's gone live, it was also you have to be very kind of aggressive with knowing when to cut it. Because we still cut it. We still had, you know, every year's worth of runway and now the studio's in a very different position. We cut early enough, but I've seen lots of studios die because they didn't have the courage to kill their or kill their, their baby, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, um, that's very accurate. Um, and morbid. Uh, yeah. I, so I want to, so we've talked about a lot of really interesting things, but I want to use Butter Royale um, ideally as a, as a way sure. of making all of this concrete um, for our listeners. So what, can you tell us about how you applied uh, Mighty Bear's framework to Butter Royale to know, yes, this is a winning concept. Let's, let's move forward. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty straightforward. So we had five or six games that we thought could be candidates for the Apple Arcade project. Uh, we put them into the framework. We sat down. There was a group of like eight, nine people in the room to really sanity check the numbers that were being put in. So, you you know, you might score one category, three out of five, four out of five. And then everyone would open. We have a big culture of dissent. Everyone would openly challenge if they strongly disagreed. And there would be some kind of consensus around what the values would be. Um, and by the end of that, we kind of got to two games. Um, we presented these to, to Apple and they, they really liked both of them. So at that point, we had to go away and decide whether uh, we were going to make one game or another. And they had kind of roughly equivalent scores within the sheet. And then at that point, we really had to sit down and have a very frank discussion with the team and really gauge like which one of the two they'd be kind of most excited to do and uh they felt they could do the best kind of level of execution on so we used the framework initially just to eliminate kind of uh three three four different concepts so we just had a couple left 
But the framework that we use is actually uh, an extended version of the of the sheet that I shared. Um, and we basically spent an afternoon scoring like five, six different games out of like, you know, 20, 30 different criteria. And at every point, like really debating and digging into the assumptions of, of kind of every score. So kind of everyone had done their homework ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the most common mistakes um, or misconceptions you see from developers when it comes to identifying a, a good game concept? Yeah, well, I mean, the most obvious one is that I like it, therefore it must be good, right? And you see this like like feeding into the scores they give stuff and you'll be like, okay, what is the... What is the, I don't know, the re, like, ret- is this likely to retain like very well, for example? And they'll say yes. And you'll be like, okay, well, let's look at the data for comparable games in the market. And then you look at like the top performing games in that genre, they won't retain. Like, well, it's people, like, there's a lot of assumptions and people basically not backing it up with data. I would say it's probably the most common thing. Um, and you don't have to use something like AppAnnie to get that data. A lot of time, it can also just be research online about how comparable titles are doing but a lot of people won't do that you know they'll just i guess just off what they believe to be true they'll just fill in these values rather than really spending the time to really consider the uh the kind of correct weighting they should be giving things and kind of scores they should be giving them Mm -hmm. last question um if you could go back in time uh and tell i don't know why we've chosen 25 years old right you could have been 17 uh but tell a tell a a younger simon davis who's trying to start his own mobile game studio uh the most important thing about identifying and evaluating new game concepts so basically summarize in very short sentences the last 20 minutes what would what would that one thing be Build a framework to try and eliminate bias. So when you have everything written with numbers, uh, it's very stark. Uh, don't blindly follow the market opportunity um, and don't try and build an MMO with eight people. <laughs> uh, that that was great. Um, thank you, Simon, for sharing your insight. Um, really, really interesting episode. Um, and thank you to everyone else as always for listening.